Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at whether the attempts to contain COVID-19 or the coronavirus will usher in the next recession and what investors should do about it. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, Jean-Paul Yeagers, Head of Asset Allocation, and Rob Smith, Head of Behavioural Finance. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. This week, we've really seen some turbulent markets. I mean, I know we sort of say that a lot, but it really has been you know, quite alarming, actually, some real whipsaw movements. We've seen interest rates plunge around the world as, as investors have sought those safe havens um, following on from all the news, the, the minute-by-minute news we seem to be getting on COVID-19. Gold seems to have done very well, I guess, that safe haven status. Um, stock markets, for their part, they've dropped sharply, um, particularly in the developed world. So to tackle all of these thorny issues, um, let's let's get uh, our head of asset allocation, JP, I'm really glad to have you back on this, um, to, to um, help us make, make some sense of what's been going on. Uh, we've got the voice of reason, Rob Smith, our behavioural guru, um, to, to talk us out of panicking too much, um, or I hope that's what you're going to do. Um, and of course, as ever, we've got we've got Will to um, to help us to, uh, to to understand a bit more about how markets have been behaving and and what that should mean for we'll us. Just try anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with you, Will. As you okay. said, you're going to try. Um, so what has happened this week that's prompted all of this, you know, whipsawing activity, as I mentioned? Yeah, Nikki. I mean, you alluded to it. Um, so you saw a jump in cases. Um, Outside of China, even as uh, cases in China seem to plateau and even decline a little bit, or new uh, cases, um, and that's forced markets to reassess the likelihood um, of the kind of relatively benign scenario where COVID-19 was more or less contained inside China. Um, Now, the World Health Organization, for their part, has not yet declared COVID-19 a pandemic at time of recording anyway, um, but many other kind of health authorities and other voices are doing it for them. Um, The risks, I mean, this is an obvious point to make, I guess, but the risks that COVID-19, or at least the efforts to contain it, uh, usher in the next recession have certainly risen. Um, It's still far from a given in our opinion, um, but the risks have certainly um, risen relative to a week ago. And that's what markets have have really been grappling with. And and Rob, what can behavioral finance tell us about markets in these situations? So I think markets should, in fact, reflect the expectations of investors about future returns. And Mostly, they do a pretty good job of uh, reflecting kind of rational um, analysis based on the information we have. However, it's important to remember at the end of the day that markets are made up of people and uh, people making decisions. And we know that, therefore, markets might reflect uh, the many biases and, um, and emotions that play into our own kind of decision making. So that means that they can be hostage to the whim, if you like, of of investor sentiment at time. Now, if we look at the most significant falls and indeed gains in uh, in markets, they tend to be magnified by an overreaction of investors. So there's often a catalyst that may have some economic rationale for the effects it's going to have on on markets. So, you know, coronavirus is obviously the one we're we're talking about at the moment. Uh, But then, you know, investor emotions can take over and uh, and really result in some severe kind of losses or, or even gains in some instances. 
Mm. And and just to unpack that a little bit more, I mean, Will, I know I know you hector people quite a bit about market efficiency. Um, Rob's just alluded to that. Can you explain a little bit more for listeners? Yeah, it's it's a really important context uh, concept, but it's not one that's sort of widely understood outside uh, outside of uh, our circles, as you know. Because what it really describes is, I think, what you're up against as a retail um, or indeed any kind of investor. Um, so the easiest way to describe it, I think, is by example. Um, and I, I think I, I can't remember if I've done this on this podcast before but it's an example that interests me but there's a really famous study of the aftermath of the challenger 2 um shuttle disaster the youth won't remember it but everyone in this room probably will a little bit ingrained too in offensive. memory and yeah, history yeah it was very much it was back in 19 it was january 1986 yeah um right, right at the end of january uh, and essentially the study looks at how quickly and efficiently markets incorporated the disaster and its various um impl- uh, implications uh, into the prices of the various quoted companies that contributed, you know, the component parts of the shuttle. Um, now, for context, you know, such was the widespread uh, confusion and surprise in the aftermath um, that President Reagan appointed a kind of blue ribbon panel headed by the former head, uh, Secretary of State William Rogers. Um, and after several months of kind of testimony and deliberation, the so-called Rogers Commission concluded that the crash resulted from, among other things, uh, a lack of resiliency at low temperatures in the seals of the shuttle's booster rockets supplied by a company called Morgan Thiokol. I'll get to the point. Um, so while it took months uh, for um, this esteemed panel to kind of reach its conclusions, the market reached um, what turned out to be the correct conclusion in a matter of minutes after the crash. So not only did Morgan Thiokol's stock price exhibit the largest volatility on the day of the uh, explosion itself, uh, the real resulting loss in the equity value was I mean, eerily close to the firm's uh, losses in terms of kind of reparations and foregone um, contracts. Now, the point here is that you should really assume that all the information you see out there, it's this kind of starting assumption, all the information you see in the newspapers, all the information, uh, you know, the data you see coming out, uh, once you see it, you should assume that that's pretty quickly already in the price, as you kind of say. Um, Now, we think there are opportunities, and Rob kind of alludes to them, inefficiencies, you might say, but uh, they are rarer than you might imagine, uh, and it's a full-time job. Now, our behavioral shortcomings are, you know, as as investors, as as a species, uh, probably explain a lot of those um, inefficiencies, in our opinion, hence why it's kind of good to have Rob about to help us find them. Keep us keep long-winded answer, but sorry, (laughs) it's an important subject, I think. And and what about the point about bubbles um, always being followed by bus. So so I've seen a lot of uh, commentary and, and um, articles around bubbles in the news over the last few months in particular. Um, even when we talk about um, normally it's stock market bubbles, but we've seen we've seen talk of uh, bubbles in the bond market as well. That's quite hard to say. A lot of bees. Um, should we simply be very wary when when prices of anything go up sharply? Um, does a bus always follow? It's unfortunately it's not that simple. It, it sounds intuitive, but um, in reality, um, well, first thing, bubbles are quite rare, um, uh, and I think the other problem is that it's really very difficult to separate bubbles from justifiable booms. Um, so what can appear to be exuberance often turns out to be just a change in the fundamental reality, underlying reality. So there was a study, I'm sorry, I'm going to allude to another study, but it was by a Yale economist, um, he was called Professor Gertzman, and he looks at data from a range of countries, and he basically finds, very simply, a a little bit oversimplifying the conclusion, that a large price increase in markets um, is twice as likely to be followed by another year of high returns uh, compared to a serious uh, kind of market decline. So, difficult. Yeah. So, so JP, just bring this back into present day, if we, if we can. Um, 
how how should we act as investors? So it sounds like these big price moves can create opportunities um, if we're very nimble, if we're very behaviorally aware. So we take on board Rob's um, Rob's cautious. Uh, uh, his his advice to us as to as to to be to be aware of our human biases how do you decide when when to do something or when just actually to sit back watch and let things play out yeah as as, as rob correctly alluded to in the short term the, there will be a lot of ups and downs and that's actually where we tend to sit on our hands because that's actually very hard to anticipate um however when we do see sizable drawdowns or actually euphoria as well that's where we feel investors tend to overshoot and that's that's uh, the, the periods where we have to fight our innate emotions um, and actually most of the times actually just do the opposite. Um, therefore, we have dashboards, indicators that will help us flag those episodes and when we, yeah, when we are at those extremes. At the moment, what we do see is investor sentiment is quite depressed in markets at the moment. Yeah. And and you mentioned that sort of having the discipline of looking at your process and really trying to follow that um, rather than just just reacting to what you're seeing on the screen. Yes. And that's yeah, that's why it's, it's helpful for us to, to build on those kind of elements and be prepared for the moments when they happen. Mm. And that's interesting. So, so Rob, when we when we look at not just what's happened this week, but but when we see another market um, meltdowns or, or hugely volatile um, sessions, what tends to be the driving force behind them? Okay, so I think the first thing really to understand is that investors tend to be loss averse. And so the fear of losses that are a looming crisis, you know, um, can um, can create, uh, could often be a, a powerful catalyst for us to make decisions and to drive behavior. Uh, there, there isn't really like one specific um, factor that tends to kind of cause this behavior, but really it's, it's a compounding of, of different issues together. So, you know, our overreaction to the news is, is sort of a perfect storm, if you like, of, of lots of different um, emotions and, and biases. So if we kind of look to unpick some of the things individually, I think we can say that, you know, our um, overconfidence and quite often overweighting of news that comes in more recently than, than news that was perhaps further um, ago in the past tends to lead us to um, simply extrapolate kind of the recent trends we've seen into the future without really an economic rationale for that. And then we're often uh, predisposed to look for information that then supports, you know, that, that investment case we have, which is just, we think the future, the past is going to, you know, carry on into the future. And, you know, once that market reaction starts, it's very easy to see how that then drives a sort of a herd behavior and lots of people sort of jumping onto the bandwagon and everyone sort of heading for their exits, if you like, as, as this kind of uh, loss-induced panic starts to set in. Mm. And JP, I know, I know you're probably looking at case studies to see, you know, how, how, how should we analyze what's happening at the moment? Obviously, we've seen other coronaviruses, um, you know, used as part of that. But given um, the current economic social context is is very different, perhaps to the past, um, is there are there any lessons that w- that can be learned from from these kinds of experiences that we've had in the past, whether it's previous coronavirus outbreaks or or other natural disasters? Well, it, it, it's as, as you said, it's, it's quite it's quite difficult to find comparable uh, if events. Um, also, if you look in the context of China as part of of the, of the global economy that has grown massively over the last few years, so it's very hard to find historical parallels. But if we were to look at what typically happens if we get viruses like, for example, SARS or natural disaster, 
we typically see a V-shaped recovery in economic growth because most of the times it's just delaying uh, demand and we typically then see a catch-up afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if it takes longer, and here a good example could be hurric- Hurricane Katrina uh, in the US, we tend to see that there tends to be more longer lasting damage. Um, and that often is purely simply because companies would start to struggle paying rents or even could go bankrupt. So for us, it's very important to monitor how long this takes. It's much more the length of time that will help us uh, get a sense of how much economic impact uh, could be more longer lasting than just a blip in, in the economic data. Okay. And and to both you and Will, I guess, you know, what's what's on investors' minds is is naturally, I mean, obviously, clearly notwithstanding the human impact of this, but when it comes to investing, is this what's going to tip us into recession? That's clearly clearly the fear that's out there. Surely the chances of that are, are rising somewhat. What do you make of that at the moment? Well, it, at, 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 yeah, it, it's not that easy because international trade is extremely complex. So even if we know that a factory or facility in China closes, it's not always necessarily a net negative impact because components may be sourced from somewhere else or for instance if people if we think about tourism instead of going on holiday to Malaysia they might go to the Bahamas so it, it's very difficult to unpick in advance what uh, what the impacts are for the global economy if you see those kind of, of closures as we see in China understandably investors are very worried because if we look at the current context we see that economic growth is quite uh, uh, low uh, the, the base rate for economic growth is quite low at the moment and we also shouldn't forget that most of the traders or investors, uh, their only experience with a recession has been the great financial crisis. Mm. Um, That's a good point. And, 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 and yeah, f- for that reason, and actually the great financial crisis was very unusual and very severe. Um, however, if, if for us, the main thing we will be looking at is the service sector. So we have seen that the service sector in the developed world and the US is actually yeah, the most important bit for us to keep our eyes on. Uh, also, we see that the trade dispute gave us some insights, a template, if you will, in, into the vulnerability or the areas we need to look out for um, with the Chinese uh, uh, for Chinese trade disruptions, uh, not only for finished goods, but also if we think about component parts. And here, especially, we have seen Europe, Germany, during the trade disruptions for the trade dispute also being quite vulnerable. And that's also what we yeah, currently see in survey data. We do see that delivery times are increasing. So we do see some imp- Im- impacts of yeah, supply chain disruptions already happening. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, so I'd obviously echo all of that. And I don't want to sort of go over the same ground. So I, I'll make a broader point, which is kind of philosophically also for, you know, for most investors, remember that, you know, it's our job to try and work out, you know, where the opportunities are, or we, you know, we're employed to do that on behalf of, you know, our clients. But for most people thinking about whether to get invested or disinvested and all those kind of things, recessions, um, you know, all the worries about Brexit, COVID-19, they're all um, not uh, things that you should necessarily worry about in your investment world. They're not things you can control. They're not things you can reasonably predict most of the time. And investing is not about reliably avoiding, uh, sorry, investing is not about, or cannot be about reliably avoiding recessions anyway, because most of them come out of the blue. The point about investing is really accessing global growth, future global growth. And so for most investors, I really just need to ask myself a simple question, which is, do I believe, do I still believe that humankind is going to continue to invent new stuff and get better at using that new stuff, productivity? Um, And I think there's very good reasons for believing that at the moment, particularly. Um, And therefore, you know, if you can say yes to that question, then very simply get invested in a diversified pool of assets um, and let 
hopefully a group of you know uh, professionals do the rest for you and try and organize those assets as best uh, and tilt those assets as sort of incoming information comes in but uh, i think too many uh, investors get too cluttered with the idea that they need to somehow time recessions or time these things they're not uh, and covid is covid 19 is a great example there was not one person predicting a viral outbreak could be the end of the economic cycle at the beginning of this year not one um, and now there are legions of them. So, uh, you know, so it just shows you the nature of investing and what we can and can't um, predict and expect. Mm. Very, very, very sage points there. And I, and I guess, Rob, obviously that philosophy is easier to buy into when things generally seem a bit calmer out there. Clearly, right now, it's not feeling desperately calm. Um uh, so, so you know the the clamouring of you know is recession around the corner, etc. Um, what's your advice for 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 from a behavioural perspective, following Will's uh, philosophy of just just do what you can afford and stay in there? So it's a it's a simple message, isn't it? But without wanting to sound like a, a broken record, we you know we always say that putting any you know market events or. or you know, news events or just a decision that you're looking to make around your investments into the context of your objectives and what it is you're trying to achieve from being invested. So investors are long-term in nature by definition, otherwise it's speculation, which is not really uh, what we're in the business of. And so any short-term sort of market movements, we shouldn't let them kind of derail us from those longer-term plans. Um, And, you know, I think it's very easy to get drawn into short-term decision-making in the world we live in when news is ever-present and and it's often not the most kind of positive messages uh, we're reading. But the more we can do to step back and and try not to over-monitor situations in our portfolios, the better to some extent. And this is where I like to draw like a, a nice analogy. And I think we can learn a lot from parental experiences. And I know that everyone, I think, in the room here is a, is a parent, so I'm hoping this strikes a chord. But, you know, when we're faced with, you know, tantruming, children you know i think most most parents will attest that the best reaction isn't a visceral emotional one but actually you know what we need to do is we need to you know or, or the advice we're given uh, when we look back in hindsight on the events that we've that have unfolded uh, is in the to, supermarket yeah, aisle. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> is is to is to um you know is is to approach with um with patience is to you know keep our calm and uh, you know show some level of empathy and if it all gets a bit too much you know take a step back rather than engaging with our kind of emotions first um and the reality is there are many similarities because quite often we as with markets with children's behavior we don't necessarily understand what the trigger is for that or or at least sometimes we think we understand but actually we you know we get those assumptions uh wrong so you know i, I think the biggest piece of advice is to be able to, to kind of step back and, and have that have that uh, broader oversight. Yeah, and and so as you say, that 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 emotional response is, you know, I think in our heads we know that's not the right thing to do. Um, but but typically we we can we can get moved to follow our hearts. But say I'm in a situation you mentioned there about sticking to your plan, which is a really good point. What if my plan is that actually right now I need some money or I need to disinvest because actually I've got outgoings or whatnot. What, what should I do in this situation? So, I mean, obviously in general, we, you know, we advocate you know, staying invested. Uh, but if, you know, if, if, you know, as you say, if you need to withdraw money from, from your investments or 
more likely if you're just in a scenario where you feel like you get to a point you can't stomach it anymore and so you you really feel like the best thing is is to step away from from the markets and take risk out of your portfolio then you know we say if if, if that's what you need to do to to be comfortable do it in a disciplined manner have some kind of strategy in place for how you're going to do that so that when you know if if things do pan out as 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 the 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 worst and the markets do fall and then there may be a you know a good buying opportunity that's presented you know you have you know a, a very structured way of, of getting reinvested because the reality is although it's quite easy to say you know when things are, are quite rosy and, and calm when that is happening and you're faced with markets that have been falling for you know a week or weeks the actual emotional kind of restraint it takes to be able to do that is very difficult and you know it's the equivalent of you know running into a burning building and you, and you talk about you know um if you talk about that to to, to firefighters you know it, it's amazing that, that they're able to do that but you know to some extent they have to and they have rules in place to make sure that you know that uh, those things are, are followed so it's the same for investors you know we have to make sure that when we come to those times those difficult times we can kind of get reinvested but the reality is that you know possibly an even better approach if that's going to be the case and we're going to find it difficult is to is to you know let the investment professionals kind of do that for you and that's where you know talking with will and jp here you know we will try and use you know the best of our knowledge to position portfolios tactically to make sure that we can kind of ride through these stormy waters and jp i guess that's where our tactical allocation tends to come into play Yes, exactly. So when, as a team, we debate what's happening in financial markets and what to do in, in client portfolios, we use checklists. And that's something that, yeah, as we've discussed during this podcast, a lot of elements we need to take into account and a lot of considerations we have to make if we make any choices and how to process them. Uh, and, and having checklists simply helps us to, to stay focused on the big picture and help us interpret the different bits of information that come in. Very simply, we, we spoke about meltdowns, but if you have a meltdown happening in the context of improving um, macroeconomic data where corporate earnings are accelerating, that will be very different than if you have a very different context. So for us, it, it's all about uh, on the environment, the trend and the moods. Great. And Will, anything that we need to look out for for this week? Yeah, so I mean, just just those guys thinking. I just had, uh, just thinking as well. Like, just remember that the reward for all that patience and fortitude and everything is, is considerable, or has been considerable over time. So just thinking about it, you know, this has been like a cursed or apparently cursed economic cycle, beset by, you know, a low productivity apparently. Uh, you know, the end of globalization, all sorts of political crises. Uh, you know, the end of the liberal world order, uh, and yet the world economy has uh, grown by a third in size since the peak of the last economic cycle. And with that have come, you know, very attractive capital market returns. So that's an example of sort of looking through it. And I guess in this particular thing, the advice that we would have is, you know, when you're going to news on the evolution of COVID-19, remember to uh, not necessarily think to uh, you know go to too many sources where the incentives may not be aligned with yours. Um, and so, really, what I'm thinking about is you know things like the World Health Organization website. They're not trying to get you to read. Uh, they're not trying to be sensationalist, and that goes for also a lot of the other sort of health organization uh, websites. So think about the incentives of the places you're going to for your news when you're going to this uh, going through this time because panic is the enemy sage sage advice um so guys thank you so much for joining us um and to the listeners thank you very much um keep subscribing uh keep uh, providing us uh, your feedback especially on linkedin i know that that will you love to see that um come through um and join us again next week
All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.